you know, what are the divisions between the labor movement, the official labor movement and progressive community organizations? Um, and how are they, has the labor movement transformed in Boston over the last several decades to really um, start creating ties, um, you know, adopting more of a model, at least some sectors of social justice unionism? This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, my name is Eric Loomis and I'm a labor historian at the University of Rhode Island. And it's uh, my great honor uh, to host this celebratory event uh, for the brand new uh, edited volume by Steve Striffler and Abby Chomsky, organizing for power, building a 21st century labor movement in Boston. Um, and uh, I was incredibly lucky enough to uh, be able to write this conclusion. Um, it's a wonderful book. Um, I thank all of you for watching this. Um, please be sure to share uh, this event uh, on the, and the video around your various social media networks. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation um, between the three of us for a bit, but please feel free to ask questions uh, and we will get to those questions as quickly as possible. Um, and it can we can have the most free, frame, free ranging conversation um, that that we can. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, the wonderful editors of this uh, volume, and, and I'm going to talk about them briefly and also talk about both my favorite book of theirs and their most recent book. Uh, and so uh, we'll start with uh, Steve Striffler. Uh, and uh, Steve uh, is the, let me get his precise uh, title here, he's the director of the Labor Resource Center at UMass Boston, um, and he is the author of many books. Um, his most recent uh, is from 2019. It's titled Solidarity, Latin America, and the U.S. Left in the Era of Human Rights. My personal favorite book of his is his 2005 work, Chicken, The Dangerous Transformation of America's Favorite Food. Um, both he and, and Avi, who have worked together in a number of, of, of different projects over the years, but uh, they both have written on transnational issues in a way that really heavily influenced myself when I wrote a book on 2015 called Out of Sight on Global Capitalism, and, and I thought this was just a, a really wonderful book. So, you know, check out his works. Um, and then uh, Avi Chomsky, uh, who is a professor of history at Salem State uh, University in Massachusetts, is the author of the brand new book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, which was just published last month uh, by Beacon Press. Uh, but I want to do a particular plug for her 2008 book, Linked Labor Histories, New England, Columbia, and the Making of a Global Working Class, which, which I would argue is one of the very best books that we have uh, on understanding issues of capital mobility and the ways in which industries stretch over uh, uh, continents, uh, not to mention just, just nations. And so uh, thank you, Steve and Avi, for uh, being here today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you I so much, wondering. Eric. 
Which which one of my books was your favorite book? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was it's hard to choose. There's so there's so many good ones. Um, but um, you know, we wanted to uh, have each of you speak for a few minutes um, about about the book, and we're going to start with Steve since I know it, it comes out of some of your work at the Labor Center at UMass Boston. Sure. Well, thanks a lot, Eric. And, and thanks for writing the wonderful conclusion and kind of hosting us here today. Um, also, thanks to Avi, obviously, for embarking on this project, writing a couple of the chapters and, and all the work we've done together. Um, I actually also think, you know, aside from that we're polite people and we should thank the press for hosting this and publishing the book. Um, I'd also like to just thank them for publishing kind of an edited book on Boston labor that that wasn't written solely or even primarily by academics, but by in large part by labor activists who are really smart, dedicated, informed, um, but you know don't always follow kind of an academic blueprint for writing a book chapter. And I think Haymarket understood that this was kind of the value of the book and really appreciated, I guess, you know, this type of diversity sort of from the very beginning that I think makes the book somewhat unique and, and frankly better. And so it certainly has academics like Avi and myself, uh, economist Randy Albelda, an anthropologist Amy Todd, Eric Larson, Elena Shi, who are you know all academics who kind of have ties or at least a foot or two in the labor activist world. But then we had contributors, Paris Grumman, the political director of the state's SEIU, Carlos Arameo, the president you know, if Unite Here Local 26, uh, Enid Eckstein, a longtime labor activist and consultant, uh, Jeff Crosby, who most folks in in kind of the New England area will know as a longtime leader of the region's labor movement, uh, Susan Moyer, uh, who I think maybe as well as anyone has straddled academia and labor. Um, her co-author, Liz Skidmore, was an activist within the building trades. Uh, Bella Robinson is kind of a leading labor leader within sex work. So, I mean, this is this is folks that really drew from their experience at work, you know, longtime rank and file activists, also leaders within the movement who, you know, like to write and think about kind of the bigger picture. And, and you know, I think in all in they're all unique kind of in their own way, but I think they also represent this sort of broader reservoir of knowledge within the labor movement that that us in academia, but also in publishing should kind of work to maybe foreground more than we do. And so really thanks to Haymarket for kind of uh, getting, getting this and, and, and understanding kind of the importance of this. Um, I'll also say, you know, a little bit about how the, the origins maybe of the book. Um, it did emerge out of the first uh, Boston Labor Conference that the Labor Resource Center at UMass Boston holds um, every year and kind of, you know, the theme changes, but its intent really is to bring together labor academics and labor activists. And so that's been kind of at the core of the conference from the beginning. Um, once the project kind of moved from a conference to a book, uh, we asked contributors to read the relatively short book by James Green and Hugh Carter Donahue um, called Boston Workers, A Labor History. This book came out in the late 70s. And I think Avi and I thought, you know, it sort of stood the test of time, kind of like all of Jim Green's work, um, but was also, you know, a great reference and organizing tool for the book because his book or their book brought it through, brought us through kind of the late 70s. And that's roughly when Organizing for Power um, picks up. That is at kind of a moment when the political um, and economic landscape really began to definitively and sort of transparently change for for labor and 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 generally not kind of in in, in good ways. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about the the chapters and the organization as we go. But I mean that at least gives you a sense of kind of where where the book comes out of. Okay. Avi, do you want to take it from here? Sure. Um, so. 
Um, I obviously was at that conference. I was actually part of helping to organize the conference. And um, I just remember at the end of it, this incredible feeling of um, hopefulness, which like we rarely feel in our political activism these days. Um, but, um, and I remember talking with you, Steve, at the, at the end of it saying, we have to do something with all of this energy. Uh, like people need to know about this. Um, and I think one of the reasons I was so excited about the conference is I grew up in Massachusetts, um, but I had lived out in California for 15 years and then in Maine for seven years before I came back to, um, to the Boston area in 1997. Um, and I discovered what so many people discover when they come to Boston is that it's just a huge puzzle. Um, that it seems everything about Boston seems so contradictory. That is, we have this sort of very liberal, progressive um, reputation, um, but there's so much about Boston that feels so provincial and so um, stuck in a particular kind of past. Um, and, um, a, a, you know, we always elect Republican governors. Um, our legislature is very slow to move on many. I mean, they, they We've been sort of a pioneer in some areas like gay marriage, but in other areas like immigrant rights, um, Massachusetts has been a real laggard compared to other states. Um, you know, Boston promotes itself as this very diverse, multicultural city that celebrates diversity, but it is so racially divided and segregated um, and levels of it's one of the most unequal, economically unequal cities in the country. So how do all these pieces fit together and what what's the role of the labor movement? And I guess what was so exciting to me about the conference, both exciting and puzzling, um, was um, that the ways that Boston's labor movement has historically um, represented a small sector of Boston's workers and um, and has not necessarily, it, it, in some ways has been a progressive force in the city, but in some ways has really been a force that has worked with industry and especially with developers for a very particular model of economic development in Boston. And when we look at the neoliberal era um, in the country, of course, labor has suffered terrible assaults, both in the public sector and the private sector. Um, and Boston definitely went through a period of, um, of recession, depression, um, but then had this recovery in 1980, and this is where, you know, kind of picking up from Jim Green's book, this, this, the Massachusetts miracle, Boston's recovery, but it was an extremely unequal recovery. So what has been the role of the labor movement? And what I found so exciting at the conference was ways in which in this neoliberal context of unequal recovery, um, coinciding also with large immigration, um, how is the labor movement you know, what are the divisions between the labor movement, the official labor movement and progressive community organizations? Um, and how are they, has the labor movement transformed in Boston over the last several decades to really um, start creating ties 
um, you know, adopting more of a model, at least some sectors of social justice unionism. And I have to say there's some unions that have been very committed to social justice unionism all along, but definitely not all. But how are these ties being drawn and how is labor movement trying to organize the new sectors growing sectors of the low wage economy. So just sort of seeing all that in action was what what made me feel like we have to do a book on this. Like all of these voices have to be have to be heard more. So in some ways, I think Boston is representative of a lot of things that are happening around the country. Um, but it's also interesting the way that Boston differs. So well, let's let's build on that last comment. Um, you know, to Boston. I mean, I, I've been in the in Rhode Island um, for ten years, uh, and you know, we're not exactly Boston, but we're pretty close. And uh, you know, I was very happy that there are two chapters in the book um, that deal specifically with Rhode Island, um, and we face a lot of the same issues, of course, that they do in Boston. And and as so many people, um, we'll probably talk about the pandemic later, but as so many people are moving from Boston to Providence, um, you know, it's it's not only is the region kind of growing more into one, but it's also leading to some of these, uh, you know, economic inequalities in housing and, and other things in Boston that are now replicating themselves here, in, 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 at least in Providence. Um, and, and so, you know, as, as, an, as something as, as an outsider to the region, I certainly agree that I've, I found living in Southern New England to be a, um, a different kind of experience, one that does kind of combine a sort of provincialism, I guess, in some ways, but also also in, in other ways, sort of leading the nation in, in progressive change. And so, um, Steve, I don't know, do you have any comments to sort of build on, on, on Avi's point about the ways in which the Boston labor movement is both indicative of the nation, but also in the ways that it seems to be, um, you know, if, if unique's not the word, um, ways in which it, it stands out from the labor movement as a whole? You're muted, Steve. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's, maybe this is sort of a roundabout way of, of getting to it. But I, it, one of the things that sort of struck me about what Avi was saying is, you know, when we th when at least when I think about Boston and sort of the, when she, I think she was referring it to it kind of as a as a puzzle, um, I mean, there is, and in a, as she noted, right, it's frequently among the cities that kind of leads or is at the top of the inequality list for U.S. cities. and, and what I find interesting is that I think this like gross inequality is sort of like at once like profoundly visible for anyone living on the wrong end of it or who wants to kind of pay attention to it. Um, but I also think it's like largely kind of invis invisible to a lot of people in some ways, like that that there's this social class that kind of runs the city, um, is doing relatively well, um, including not only kind of an economic elite, but sort of an upper middle class connected to universities, hospitals, finance, you know, all these sorts of things that probably don't see themselves um, as powerful people, but who who are nonetheless elites with a lot of disposable income have gone to kind of the rich regions like elite high schools and colleges and live in this kind of world where, you know, downtown Boston, Cambridge and Somerville are are very beautiful places and they kind of enjoy these things, but live very distinct. And I don't think like connect with or visit places like Dorchester and Roxbury and other parts of Boston. And then that way it's very like segregated. And I think like it, getting to the labor movement, I think that there is that that although it's like a very progressive area, often this this inequality is largely off the public radar because it's not 
part of the daily experience of, of the folks kind of running the place. Um, and what this means, I think, for the region's labor movement is it, it also occupies kind of an ambiguous place in relation to that inequality in the sense that, you know, there are some workers in unions like Unite Here and SEIU who come from a working class in the sense of workers who, you know, despite being unionized are relatively marginalized, not only economically, but in terms of race, gender, where they live in the city, are heavily immigrant class of workers who are struggling. Um, but then there is kind of this, this unionized sector that that itself is not far removed in an economic or sort of socio-cultural sense from the social class that runs Boston. Um, and, and this would include, I think in varying degrees, like teachers, including faculty, um, so, you know, some nurses, some in the building trades. And this isn't a criticism so much of the union movement or a sector of it. It's to say that a sector of it's been really successful in some ways um, in in advocating for a relatively small sector of the working class um, and that that success in some ways can potentially disconnect you socially and politically from a lower working class that lives very different lives. Um, and it, and that, I mean, I think the chapters, most of the chapters in the book in some ways struggle with that question is how does a successful labor movement that is not only delivered, I, I think it's be, you know beyond delivering successes in a narrow way to its it's workers, right? They've also shaped, um, they do shape sort of public policy and who gets elected in Boston. They shape it less so on a state level, but they still have influence on a state level in ways that has benefited working people kind of more broadly. But then I think the question is, how do they link in broader ways to the mass of workers who remain unorganized and are kind of outside of that political and economic framework? And I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about Boston that the rest of the country is also struggling with. Another thing that I would say um, is racism, just how racially segregated Boston and its suburbs are with people of color. You know, you mentioned Dorchester and Roxbury, people of color concentrated in these sort of pockets of poverty, both in Boston and in some of the secondary cities or gateway cities um, like Lawrence, um, Lowell. Lynn, the three L's, um, you know, Springfield, Worcester, and um, how how this residential exclusion is part of what I call in my chapter a tangle of exclusion that has um, has really maintained a racial divide that's so striking compared to other places that that I've lived. Well, Avi, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, what? What is the role of uh, organized labor in e either fighting that racial exclusion or even perhaps contributing to that racial exclusion, um, depending on the union, the time, the place, et cetera? So much, and this is one of the things that was kind of exciting about the conference, because as far as I knew, much of Boston's labor movement had been very racially exclusive. Um, and, you know, one of the ways... That, that um, this showed up is um, in the teachers union and its response to desegregation, um, its response to um, the need to create a more diverse teaching force that it was extremely resistant to. And um, a lot of the battles ended up being around seniority um, because once the city finally did start hiring um, teachers of color, uh, then starts the economic downturn and, um, and people are being laid off 
And so the question is, well, do you maintain diversity or do you follow strict seniority? And of course, the union argued for strict seniority. But the Boston Teachers Union has completely transformed, I would say, in the last 10 or 15 years so that it's now led by a woman of color and it's been extremely um, progressive on uh, issues of race and equity. Um, and I think another, you, you know, I, I, I feel like it's um, part of the problem has been the, um, the fact that civil rights gains have accompanied these attacks on organized labor so that um, it's been ex just like as I was describing in the teachers union. So like it's easy to point your finger at the unions and say, well, they're being really racist, you know, and a lot of them are public sector unions, which were for which had to be like the doors had to be beaten down in the police and the firefighters um, to to create some diversity in hiring. And it's still a, a huge issue. Um, but that uh the issues of affirmative action come on the scene just as public sector cutbacks are coming. So it becomes kind of a zero sum game. And so it's, it's, it's not a, it's not an easy position for a union to be in because the union's job is to defend its members. Yeah. And I mean, uh, just to follow on that, and, and it's also complicated by immigration, right? In, in the sense that, I mean, and this isn't unlike many other U.S. cities, but Boston certainly feels it in, in the sense that it, it's kind of in that post-World War II period where unions are simultaneously kind of in decline and you have, you know, fairly large numbers of immigrants, generally almost exclusively immigrants of color moving into the Boston region at the precise time when the economy is changing, uh, unions are sort of disappearing from certain sectors and, and you're having that dynamic as well. They're trying to, as sort of Avi was saying, pound open, open the doors and certain areas, but at a moment of kind of of, of broad economic decline, that's also a, a being where unions are also being hit. But another thing that was so exciting to me at the conference was, I mean, I feel like a lot of immigrants work in sectors that um, organized labor has always felt were unorganizable, um, informal sectors, uh, and this, this, you know, the, the growing informal sectors under the, in the neoliberal era, um, like home health workers and, um, uh, you know, under the table and, you know, newspaper delivery and, and all of these uh, landscaping, um, you know, subcontracting in the building trades, which has also been terrible for the building trades unions. Um, but uh, one of the things that was exciting at the conference was the feeling that the unions are recognizing that not only are these sectors organizable, but they are the future of labor organizing. That is that they, that there's been a real um, turnaround, I think, in the last 20 years in terms of these are the sectors we have to organize, whether it's janitors, um, you know, food workers, uh, these low wage sectors that um, where a lot of the immigrant workers are employed. Um, but it definitely has not been easy in looking at um, the history of the worker centers and their relationships with unions. 
um, and their attempts to or to organize on different levels the workers who they work with because um, while many immigrant workers have union experience in their own countries um, and are actually like quite seasoned labor organizers by the time they get here even if maybe they don't speak English and they aren't immediately recognized by the sort of old guard of organized labor um, but that old guard is transforming um, many immigrant workers, aren't interested in organizing. They just want their back wages. Um, you know, they come to the worker centers on cases of, of wage theft, and really they want to stay under the radar. They want to work for a couple of years and go home. Um, so they're not necessarily unorganizable, but even outside of traditional labor unions in, in the worker centers that um, one of the chapters that I wrote was about um, there's tensions sometimes between the desire of the worker centers to create more of an organization, even if it's not a union, and some some of the workers who go there just because they want a particular, um, you know, problem solved, but but really don't have the time, the energy, or even the desire to be part of of trying to change the larger system. Yeah, I, I, you know, th there's a lot to to to, to build on there, um, and I want to talk about the worker centers, um, but 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 and, and uh, more about the contingent economy and the the informal economy, and there's a lot of chapters that deal with that. Um, but I think before we get to that, I want to step back to an earlier point that you made, um, and see if Steve, you have comments on this um, too, because it, it definitely seems to me as well that in the time that I've been involved in the labor movement since for me was really the late nineties. Um, and, um, uh, that at the same time that, you know, unions have, have received blow after blow, um, where numbers, you know, the overall percentage of, of workers in unions is at a, you know, a century, uh, you know, a low of a century, and, and that's even worse in the private sector. But at the same time that you finally are seeing union leadership move away from an older model and really becoming more progressive, becoming leaders and, and allies on the immigration issue, understanding the need for diversity, and in some ways setting themselves up that if the conditions are again right, that there is at least the ideological predilection for reorganizing going forward here, that, that, that the future, I think people realize finally that we can no longer organize for the labor movement of 1950. It needs to be the labor movement of 2050. And, and I don't know, Steve, does, does, does that does that seem true to you um, in thinking about uh, your time here in Boston and the things that you have observed at, 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 you know, in all the great conferences that you've put on over the years? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think that's like, in some ways, like, that's the that's the challenge. I mean, is that I don't I don't think, and I obviously sort of spoke to this, but I mean, I would say virtually all unions that we work with through the labor center, you know recognize some basic tenets that probably most of us would agree on. That is that um, we're, we, well, we, well, that established unions that are relative, that have substantial members and resources, yes, they need to remain strong. They need to remain engaged in sort of protecting their members and the workplace and all those sorts of things traditional unions do. But if they want to have you know, if they want to have power, political power on a citywide or a statewide level, or even have the capacity to do kind of 
targeted campaigns to to organize or to shift policy. Um, I think they all know and are actively trying to, um, you know, organize with um, organize other workers or organize with community groups and faith-based organizations. I mean, there's certainly some unions, you know, Unite Here, and I think Carlos Aramayo's chapter on um, the cafeteria workers speaks to this, that are, you know, those are the targets. They're trying to organize in this sense, right, immigrant workers or groups of workers in sectors of the economy that have not traditionally been organized. And they've had in the case of Unite Here, I think they've had substantial success. I mean, they've they've double, tripled the number of workers. Um, in other ones, right, in other unions that are kind of larger and have more established presence, it's trying to think of, you know, how do we, yeah, how do we not only build sort of a strong union or or increase the strength of our union, but how do we build a labor movement? Um, and and the only way to do that, and I think folks recognize this, is by branching out, working with community groups, other organizations. Um, I mean, I think, you know, Harris Grumman's chapter, I think, does a nice job of, like, right, having us think, so what, how does a labor movement that does not have the density necessary to, um, you know, really sway elections on a statewide level, how do you exert statewide power? Like, how do you, you know, campaigns around, you know, a millionaire's tax or the fair share amendment in in Massachusetts or um, increase the minimum wage? And I mean, I think their strategy is you have to build alliances with community groups and other organizations. And, And I mean, I think those are those are the paths that folks are pursuing. But but when the labor movement is as weak as it is, when the right is as strong as it is, um, that's not an easy hill to climb. And, and I think that's that's where we're at right now. I guess I would also say that it's important to think about the impact of the Cold War on the labor movement. That is um, the real uh, marginalization of the left inside the labor movement Um in in Cold War, post-war America, which is supposedly the you know the the heyday of the labor movement as well. Um, so the the idea of kind of um, you know adherence to U.S. foreign policy, anti-communism, um, all of that um, worked for the labor movement um, prior to the 1970s. So part of the transformation. And, and, you know, the left was was um, really deliberately pushed out. Now, this didn't happen in every union, um, but, but overwhelmingly that was the trend. So I think recovering some of those radical roots is another piece of it. Um, but I also think it's really interesting to look at a union like Local 201 in Lynn, which is actually quite different from most of Boston's labor movement because it's the one sort of heavy industry um, that has been in the Boston area for you know over a hundred years um, and remains in the Boston area, although it's <laughs> unsurprisingly um, under attack. And one of the campaigns that Local 201 is working on right now is to try to um, pressure GE not to outsource what work actually still remains in land, which is what GE is trying to do, because that's where the profits are. That's like the story of deindustrialization, right? But um, that... So working with it inside the workplace and also um, outside the workplace, like 
you know, this whole worker organizing um, ideology, I think, um, is something that both comes from the radical tradition in the U.S. labor movement, um, definitely uh, is very important for working with immigrant workers, um, but is also a kind of a radical tradition that has been maintained in in certain pockets, like we see. In, in, I mean, I feel like Lynn is a really unusual case. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I agree that that Lynn is is quite unusual for you know for for this time, and there, there's a lot that we can learn. And, and it, your your comments make me think that you know we're coming up this fall is going to be 10 years since the occupy wall street protests and you know it's a time to kind of think you know it's a kind of time to think about this and you know come you know and then we have this book on the present state of the labor movement in boston and you know in my view anyway a big piece of the last 10 years has been the revival of the left new ideas new tactics new strategies adjusting to new realities and really making big gains, you know, even if sometimes it doesn't seem so. Um, and so, you know, I guess what I would really be curious to hear both of you about is the ways in which you've seen the revival of the left have an impact on the labor movement or organizing generally in, in Boston and the Boston area, especially considering that well, certainly the labor movement itself, unions have played a role here. A lot of this energy has been on economic inequality and racial inequality, but actually more of a grassroots in a more of a grassroots basis outside of the established labor movement. I realize that's a big question. Um, I, if either of you can take that, you want to take a shot? I mean, I'll say I'll say one thing. I mean, I I do think like it's. It's certainly, you know, I mean, not only Occupy, but I mean, I think I mean, I think I would throw in kind of the Sanders campaign kind of right in that same place and probably had a larger influence in some ways of putting putting kind of a broad set of economic issues, certainly inequality, but I think also like a range of public goods around investments in certainly in healthcare, but also uh, education. And I mean, I think the I think like. The unions, I think the unions like have have gotten that and are do you know and are right thinking thinking like less narrowly in terms of the interests of their own members and more broadly in terms of like campaigns that benefit working people more generally. And one could say maybe we wish they did even more of that. But I mean, I, I do think like the fair share amendment is part of that, um, pushing for increased minimum wages. Um, I think, you know, healthcare are are issues that like the labor movement should get behind because it's not like they can be, they can like debunk kind of that stereotype of, you know, they're just out for the interests of, of their members. Um, I mean, I also think like the influence of the left like can be can certainly be like overstated or this leftward shift can certainly be overstated too, right? Like in the sense that I do think we've seen some unions in not only in in the Boston region, but more sort of more broadly, where you've seen the emergence of a fairly solid left leadership within those unions that are often diverse women, women of color who are fantastic. Um, and but I think like there's also a ton of political education that needs to go on within unions. And and just to say that it 
I mean, I, I'm actually the, the president of a labor union of of faculty who are really smart. Um, but like, and but also, I think even like there, we need like to do a lot more work on political education, just like in all sorts of ways. And not, I don't mean that in like a paternalistic ways, like that folks don't know anything. I just think that just needs to be done to like unify us, get us around a certain set of issues, you know, get people mobilized and energized. And that's and that's really hard to do when a lot of what unions are doing are fighting back and putting out fires on an everyday basis. And so, I mean, I think that like to say, oh, we need to organize or we need to increase political education. I think everybody knows that it's like figuring out how to do it. That's a lot more, more difficult. And that's sort of the, I think one of the challenges or one of the difficulties of, you know, that, that we've seen the rise of the left or at least the rise of these set of issues. Um, but then how to kind of mobilize and increase sort of the level of political consciousness and education kind of around union members and then more broadly is, a, is certainly a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say that, um, you know, the neoliberal era is also an opportunity as well as a challenge, um, in this regard, because, um, you know, just like I was starting to allude to earlier in terms of foreign policy, like I think it became really clear to unions that the U.S. goal of repressing the left throughout the world um, was not in the interest of U.S. workers because it was in the interest of creating a, a low-wage labor force that could <laughs> undermine their own jobs here in the United States. So that international solidarity, um, which again had been kind of crushed under this Cold War anti-communism, um, was something that that was an absolute necessity. Um, now that also is complicated because um, you know, the movement to challenge like NAFTA and the, the free trade ideology um, also could be diverted into the kind of a right wing Trumpian um, America first. And I think that that unions, you know, in terms of political in terms of political education, unions and union leadership is also still sort of trying to figure out exactly what its path is. But this is also somewhere in which I think immigration has been really important and could be even more important. And I'm remembering something that um, Jose Laluz, who um, I can't remember which union he was with in Los Angeles, said, you know, it's when the third world in the first world takes over the unions in the first world that we're going to really see them radicalize. Um, that a lot of Latin American workers, marginalized as they are, um, come with a lot of political education. Um, and some of the um, organ immigrant organizations like Centro Presente and the um, Brazilian Women's Center, uh, they do political education, um, not just of their own constituency, but you know, of the legislature and the, uh, you know, Centro Presente takes takes legislators to El Salvador to to um, talk to them about what's happening there and why the United States should not be supporting the right wing in El Salvador. So, um, you know, these these things are happening on all kinds of different levels. Uh, 
I wanted to, I mean, it's such a, um, a great kind of organic conversation, um, but I also want to make sure that we do touch on uh, some key issues. Um, and uh, uh, one, and then I think we're going to get to some um, uh, viewer questions, but I, I wanted to ask you all uh, about the public sector. Uh, because the public sector unionism is an enormous part of the labor movement today in Massachusetts, it certainly is in Rhode Island. Um, and, you know, I think that any revival of the labor movement uh, in in the nation, uh, but is certainly here in New England, is going to be um, is driven in no small part by the public sector. Um, but public sector workers are also a incredibly diverse set of people that range from professors at state institutions like the three of us um, to, uh, you know, to, you know, to, you know, janitors at, at the state house and, and people working in um, blue collar positions and really everything in between. And so um, I was wondering what thoughts you all had about the role of the public sector um, in Massachusetts and the ways in which it can do more to leverage power uh, for the, the labor movement as a whole. You want to start, Steve? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's. I mean, it's a. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and I, I, I think probably the people in the audience will obviously know how important public sector unions are, kind of, to the labor movement. But it's it's kind of hard to over overstate that in the case of. Massachusetts. I mean, the, just in terms of the the density, it's kind of just overwhelming, and they're kind of at the the core of the movement. I mean, I think maybe is maybe what Eric was alluding to, uh, is right. They certainly enjoy a high level of relative union density, good, pretty good job security, relative good wages. Um, I think, um, you know, which puts them, I think, like in a relative position of strength from which to exert political power. And certainly like on some issues they do. I mean, again, I mean, I mentioned the fair share amendment and pushing a millionaire's tax. I think they're certainly behind that, like a whole range of issues that are good, not only for, you know, not only good for kind of their employees, but thinking, I think much more, much more broadly than that. Um, but, you know, I think also on the flip side, right, these are also unions and, and Eric sort of mentions this that are like extremely diverse, um, whose I think often whose kind of rank and file maybe back to that question of political education, like it, it like kind of, kind of could benefit from a, a, a sort of a strong left kind of political education. That is that they're not necessarily the most militant of unions in part because they've been like that, that a form of business unionism has kind of worked for them. Like they have seen like incremental gains over a long period of time um, that, and they are, um, you know, relatively well paid and, and have relatively stable jobs. And I mean, I think this, and, but they are, I mean, I, I do think it's hard, on the one hand, like it's hard for me to imagine like a much more powerful labor movement that ultimately is not rooted in the private sector. Like I think I think it's absolutely key to kind of the future of the labor movement, but there, there has to be kind of thinking about how does what is right currently now, in a sense, the strength of the labor movement, public sector unions, um, how can they be mobilized to kind of not only, I guess, both help that help make that happen. That is sort of increase, like increase sort of the political space for other workers in other sectors in the private sector to kind of organize. Um, and, and I think partly by pushing campaigns that, you know, make things like healthcare and education sort of more, 
more viable and more available to broader classes, but also I think just by, uh, you know, changing the political kind of climate for, for organizing. But that's a, it's a, again, a, an uphill battle. So I just add a couple of things, um, picking up right where you left off. Um, I think one of the areas in which the public sector unions in, in and around Boston have been really successful has been in making this transition to this idea of bargaining for the common good. So that defending public services that working people rely on, whether it's public transportation, um, uh, you know, Boston Medical Center, public access to health care, public schools. Um, so the um, their their leadership in campaigns to defend the public sector as it's under neoliberal assault, I think, are, are a really important component of um, these labor community ties and uh, and putting labor at the center of progressive struggles that are in, at the bottom for more equality, for, um, you know, for a socioeconomic transformation and for the rights of the poor. So that's one um, really important thing. A second thing, which is, can be both a strength and a weakness, is that um, they depend so much on the legislature because, uh, you know, taxes, cutbacks, um, you know, the public sector, of course, the private sector is vulnerable also, but the public sector is vulnerable in particular ways that um, that can undermine its strength. Um, and, you know, just what's happening at the state universities right now is uh, my own university right now is an example of that, where, you know, we have lost public funding um, progressively over the past several decades. And, um, you know, students' fees are going up. And so the university now says they want to retrench. And, um, you know, they can pose it, the university can pose it as like it's the faculty against the students. Like we're asking for too much money and that's why students' fees are going up. So, um, you know, that's a vulnerability that public sector unions um, need to find ways to um, to fight back on. Like, yes, we want to, we want, we don't want fees to go up. We want to be funded by the state, but that also is taxpayer money. So it's another vulnerability that, um, you know, it's a lot easier to hate your private sector and to build public support against your private sector employer when your employer is the public sector really who's paying your salary is the public. Yeah. So we do have a, a couple of questions in the chat, and I think we'll maybe switch back and forth so long as we have some questions. So um, one individual um, asked, with so much recent focus on the importance of organizing the South, the recent Amazon drive uh, being the most uh, recent example, can you talk about what lessons positive and negative from Boston's labor movement might apply there? So that's a big question, um, but uh, does any do, do either of you want to take on that uh, that that challenge? Bobby, you want to take a shot at it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so there's nothing in the book about this. So, um, but um, you know, organizing the South has been a weakness of the labor movement. Um, 
for its entire existence, you know, the entire history of the country. And I think um, definitely is part of what we could call the Cold War consensus was. All right. Well, we're back. Little technical difficulties, the, the glories of technology. But hey, at least we're all, you know, we're all here and we can even at least do this event in this this age of of pandemic and isolation. So thank you all for uh, hanging with us. And um, uh, and thanks for Haymarket, too, for for, you know, continuing to uh, work with us and, and work all these uh, little uh, bugs out and, and, and make sure, of course, that you, uh, you know, uh, uh, patron um, the Haymarket website for their many, many great books. Um, when we got cut off, uh, Avi was kind of talking about uh, there was a question about the South and the Amazon, uh, the Amazon uh, uh, union vote that unfortunately uh, went down to defeat. And she was sort of making the point that, um, you know, that, that really with the labor movement so weak nationally, especially in the private sector, that we really have to organize everywhere. And, and that actually led to, there was another uh, question in the chat um, that I will uh, go ahead and read, and then I'm actually gonna have a little response to. Um, and that question read, not a Boston specific question, but how much of a game changer do you each think the PRO Act will be for the labor movement? And are there dangers in focusing on legislative solutions to labor's retreat? And I guess I'll sort of take that to to, to start, um, only because this is something that I've I feel pretty strongly about. I mean, and I think that um, you know that the reality is is that in well, you know, I I wrote this book, History of America in Ten Strikes, and you know, one of the things that reading the vast uh, literature on labor history, one of the lessons to me anyway, and others may disagree with this, but that um, there were just the unfortunate reality of, of American history uh, is that we've mostly been dominated dominated by a very powerful corporate business, a corporate government alliance that's at the federal level, but sometimes even worse at the state and local levels. And that over and over and over again, you really have seen government interfere on the side of business to um, uh, to, to win. And that, and that included at Amazon, right, where they uh, where Amazon was able to get uh, the the uh, city of Bessemer to change the traffic light pattern so that you couldn't hand out leaflets and flyers and, and engage in traditional organizing tactics. And I actually I had a, a an op-ed in the New York Times uh, about the PRO Act a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, you know, it's been 83 years since the U.S. passed comprehensive labor law reform that helped workers. And that was the Fair Labor Standards Act, where we get the minimum wage and the eight-hour day. That's a long, 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 long time ago. And since then, think about how the entire world of work has changed. The reality is, is that unions were never that strong in this country, um, even at the peak of, of their power in terms of political power, and it's only gotten weaker since. And so I don't know if the PRO Act, personally, I don't know if the PRO Act um, would revive the labor movement, um, but I can say this, I think it, it definitely helps to reset the conditions and re-level the playing field so that uh, the government, if the government's more neutral, it really can give workers a chance to win, which is a lot of what happened in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. It's not that the government was really pro-labor, even really pro-conservative labor, but it was it was more of a level playing field. And so that's at least my take on that. Um, I don't think it's a panacea 
But I also think it's just so hard to win a union election these days with companies being able to just dominate and intimidate workers in captive meetings for weeks and draw the thing out. And so, you know, it's a whole year, two years before you get a first contract. Um, And it, it makes it almost impossible for the labor movement to revive itself without labor law reform. So that's my take on it. I don't know if Avi and Steve, if you have any any thoughts on this matter. Um, no, I totally agree with you. And I always think back on the study that um, Kate Bromfenbrenner up at Cornell did um, on, uh, you know, management tactics in that period of um, between organ- between calling for an election and the election actually taking place and um, how even when unions start out with strong support, management has legal ways to chip away at that. And, you know, the, the, you know, election sounds so like fair and free, like you get to vote. And so everybody gets to say what they think, but the way that the election system is structured works entirely in management's favor right now. I mean, I also think like in terms of these things, like, yeah, it's hard to know what like the pro act will mean, right. In five, 10 years or something along those lines. And, and will it level the playing field for labor? Or will, <laughs> will they find other ways to kind of uh, make it, you know, impossible, but I mean, at least it's a, at least it's sort of a signal, right. That, and this is sort of in some ways, right. That, that if something like this can get, you know, gets passed, it's, it's a signal in a sense that there is some like political shift, right? That this didn't like happen after Obama. Like at least there is some movement kind of in this area, even if it's weak and it's not kind of maybe what we, what we wanted, even if we don't think it's going to completely transform things, at least there's kind of a, it feels as though there's something of an opening there that, that hasn't been there at least for a little bit. Um, and at least some, some, you know, public, uh, you know, it, it, these kinds of things are on the public radar and there's certainly some sympathy for them, but this can obviously shift quickly in the other direction, too, as we know. Yeah. So um, what, one thing I think we, we definitely want to talk about before um, we, we we close here um, is, is and, and please ask more questions. We do have a little bit more time, but many of the essays in the book are on various forms of contingent labor, informal labor, uh, the many non-traditional uh, forms of labor, right? I mean, one of the, one of the, my favorites in the book is, is on uh, sex work in Rhode Island um, that I think is, is, you know, not a part of a traditional labor movement, but is an important, but is, is a real sector of the economy um, where there is organizing potential. And, you know, Amazon um, to kind of, bridge back to that, right, is, is a kind of a, of a leader in creating um, this 21st century economy. Um, and that economy is tremendously fractured um, with franchising and gig and, and all of these different ways in which employers are able to protect themselves from actually having responsibility for, for their workers. And so I was wondering, you know, based on the many um, important essays in this book, um, what we think about the the state of organizing um, the, gig, the gig economy or organizing the informal economy, whether it's through worker centers, whether it's through solidarity efforts, whether it's potentially through unionization, where do we see this going in the next five to 10 years? I always try to evade the questions that ask what's going to happen in the future by saying I'm a historian. <laughs> I know. As a historian as well, I know we all hate that question, but, you know, people like it. <laughs> I 
you want to go ahead, Avi, or? Um, well, let, let me ask a different way. What needs to happen to in order to more successfully organize in the informal economic sector? What, what can unions do to, 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 to help uh, move this conversation forward? Well, I mean, so just to connect back to what you were just talking about, um, the legislative climate, um, Bell Robinson said, um, made a really interesting comment last week when um, about the chapter about organizing sex workers in Rhode Island. Um, she said, when you make something illegal, um, like sex work, um, but she was also talking about like comparing it to, uh, you know, immigration, um, you know, undocumented workers, that is workers who are illegalized. Um, it doesn't go away. It just gets a lot worse. Um, so, you know, I do, th I feel like a lot that there's been both a resurgence of the left, but also um, that even if the, I don't know, there's just so many contingencies. How can we say what's going to happen? Um, but okay, let me just talk about one thing that is going to happen, um, which is climate change. And I think that um, you know, while we were offline, Steve was just saying something about how that's a really difficult issue for the labor movement. But I think that the labor movement must, if it wants to survive and if it wants all of us to survive, um, find a way to take a much stronger voice and leading role um, in the struggle to push the United States to um, take much more dramatic action, even than what Biden has currently proposed, because um, radical as as Biden's um, orders and proposals have looked, they do not put us on a path to 1.5 degrees. Even if Biden gets to do everything he says he wants to do, we are still headed for three to four degrees. The United States will still be one of the largest per capita emitters in the world. Um, and we will still be emitting far more than our fair share. And the climate emergency is getting closer. I mean, it's already upon us, but um, our chances of escaping uh, with a habitable, a humanly habitable planet are going down every single day. And I think that's something that the labor movement just absolutely has to confront. You know, Eric, in terms of the, I agree, completely agree with that. I mean, in terms of like the informal sector, I, I mean, I guess I'm really not optimistic. Like, I don't, I don't think it's going to get better in the next five to 10 years in term, like in terms of organizing. And, and my own sense for that is like the best path for the best path for, for the labor movement in terms of helping that sector of the working class is to push for a variety of public goods, like to push for health, universal health care, better access to public housing, better access to public education, you know, all those sorts of things that, well, and, and in a sense, right, that so when when people do lose a job or move around, that 
that that losing a job isn't doesn't feel like it's the end of your life. And and this it does in the United States. And that's like a fundamental I think it's a fundamental difference just from Europe, like in terms of like the perfection, the, the protections and like just how terrified people are to lose their job and how that makes it difficult to organize, to strike all those kinds of things. I do think I mean, it, and this isn't the informal sector, but I do think like I think the service sector and organizing the service sector is, you know, is absolutely key. And we certainly have some chapters that kind of deal with that in the book in the sense of, right. I mean, in that, like, those are areas that, well, growing areas of the economy, growing areas where a large chunk of, of the working class is unorganized, but also is, is, that's where they are. The immigrant working class around, you know, hotels, the entire service sector that kind of defines, well, that, right, that we just have this, entire i mean and that's what it, i think that's like what's in some ways the most stunning thing to me about boston is that there is this you know upper middle upper middle upper class folks that that live and really enjoy boston in in the way i think like in the way i think a lot of times like it's portrayed like publicly and and found but it's there's an underbelly of service that just makes that go on and if there aren't ways in which to kind of organize those sectors in you know casinos restaurants hotels um you know everything like that then then we're in trouble and i think there's that's seems to me like there's more of a path forward there and we see this in various unions i think in the region than there is for kind of organizing the informal sector but that's that's just my sense yeah. So I guess two more questions and then we'll let everybody uh, go for the for the evening. Uh, one is so, you know, I, I wrote the conclusion for this book, eh, you know, nearly two years ago now. It's the long process of publication. And, you know, in the meantime, since these essays were written, we have seen some significant changes. Right. That uh, and, and we had the, the, the teacher strike wave. Um, and, you know, the, the little peak in strikes in 2018, 2019, um, the government shutdown and the ways in which, you know, the, the, the you know, the call potentially by flight attendants head Sarah Nelson for a general strike seemed to shut that down almost immediately. And then we had COVID-19. Um, so for in your mind, what are the things in the last, say, one to two years um, since this book was put together that are important for or that, that, that might have changed the way in which uh, you might have organized this this book or or another way of asking that convoluted question is in the last two years, what is really important about understanding Boston labor movement um, that 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 listeners need to really understand? Um, so I'll start. This isn't exactly an answer to your question because I'm not sure if it's how we would have organized the book differently, but it's definitely things that have happened that I think reflect on some of the things that we talked about in the book. Um, one is the um, visibilization of what we call essential workers. You know, Steve was just saying that that this sector is so invisible in Boston, um, but the the notion of the care economy. Um, and essential workers, like that's something that is on the tip of everybody's tongue now. Everybody knows um, what it what it is and how how 
important it is to our economy. So I think there's been a visibilization of um, of this care economy that's really important, both in terms of struggles for rights and equality, um, and in uh, well. Well, and in terms of climate change, um, because um, if we can make caring the the care sector good jobs, like those are jobs that that um, don't depend on fossil fuels and extracting more resources and producing more useless stuff. Um, so, I mean, I think rethinking the nature of work is something that we have to do in the era of climate change and understanding the care economy and um, and valuing and giving it the value that it's due to the to the care economy is really an important piece of the struggle against climate change. Um, another thing uh in a more pessimistic note is um, not only so the the profound racial and economic inequalities in Boston were obviously um, also just uh, horrifically visibilized by by the pandemic, both the fact that um, communities of color were so um, disproportionately affected by COVID in terms of um, illness, in terms of death, um, the lack of protections that that people had on their jobs. Um, but even and, you know, so that's that's like a reflection of what already exists. But even in the vaccine system, and this was an article that just stuck with me, um, that people in wealthy white neighborhoods of Boston had like three vaccine clinics within a mile of their homes. People in poor immigrant neighborhoods and where people of color live had to travel miles and miles to get to a vaccine clinic. And this is something that was very deliberately set up by the state in the context of COVID. It's not just a reflection of pre-existing inequalities. It's state actions that are entrenching and exacerbating the inequalities that already exist. Yeah, no, I mean, I think maybe just to echo a few of those, those things. I mean, I, I, I definitely think one of the things, you know, certainly the pandemic did, and Avi mentioned this, is certainly like raise the importance of a whole class of essential workers that suddenly kind of became really visibilized during the pandemic. Like what that means to, in the long run is really unclear to me. Like, will everyone just forget about this in a couple of years and go back to normal? I bet I, my, that that would be my guess. Um, I, I, I do think, though, like, a lesson that maybe people learned a little bit was just like the importance of actually having like a functioning state um, and that can deliver not only things like vaccines, but, you know, basic public goods and can has enough like wherewithal and, and functions well enough to be able to make, you know, the sh kinds of shifts the pandemic kind of necessitated, whether it was around education, work, um, social safety nets, those sorts of things. I mean, I, I I'm also not sure how long that sort of will stick around, but I feel like that kind of may be with us for a little bit longer. I certainly th like also think like there's been a rethinking, a rethinking of work, but also of leisure and like how we kind of live our lives to whether, you know, whether that'll stick and also kind of inequality, I think is in there as well. I mean, I will say, I don't think like, I, I think 
I don't think it's been good for organizing, like in any and in any sector. I think it's been devastating for the service industry. Like the get, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I don't have my sort of hand on the pulse, but my sense is it was not good for you know. There was a lot of gains in hotel with hotel workers. I suspect that that they're you know not back to square one, but lost a lot of ground kind of during this period for you know, and and my and also that that's sort of a good example, but that other industries have really seen this as an opportunity to, you know, get, you know, let go workers, get rid of the more secure workers and bring in kind of more temporary insecure labor forces. And that this could, that, that COVID and all this create an opportunity. I mean, I do think like that, that if there was another book, I mean, I think that would have to be kind of a question, right? Is what, what did this mean for kind of organizing in particular sectors and and just in and also in terms of what it meant for like job security and wages and all those sorts of things for different groups and certainly you know women and folks of color were probably on the short end of that i mean i think we know that that's the case in massachusetts just statistically but it, i think it would be worth looking at in more detail disaster capitalism yeah yeah, I, it, it has certainly seemed to me that this kind of hero rhetoric around certain classes of workers during the pandemic um, was was fine so far as it goes. But it, it, where it doesn't go is, hey, we should pay these workers more. Right. That 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 the hero has become whether you're, you know, and of course, if you're a food worker, um, you didn't ask to be a hero. Right. I mean, that's not why you took this job. Um, you know, you're not in the military or or, or in a hospital. And, and if, for example, not that they necessarily uh, took that job for that reason either. But the point being that it becomes an excuse to say you're sacrificing for us. And so, you know, did it lead to, you know, did calling grocery store workers heroes lead to increased pay. Well, no, it has not. Right. And I think that that's certainly that to me, that's certainly a big piece of, of the story going forward is the ways in which we talk about workers without actually doing anything for them. Right. I mean, you know, it's all the signs and the wealthy side of Providence. Uh, you know, we support these workers. Well, it's like, OK, so what are you going to do about that? Um, but um, since we really only have time for for one more question, I wanted to um, ask you it, what in writing in writing this book in editing this book what is one in piece of inspiration that you want people to take away after reading this book i found the book tremendously inspiring and again i was very honored to write the conclusion for what is such a fantastic volume and it's so easy to talk about being a downer uh, in the labor movement for for a lot of reasons what can we feel good about coming out of this book I guess to me, what's inspiring is even though, and what was the title of the book, How to Be for Labor When It's Flat on Its Back or something, um, even though the larger panorama, I think, is um, really difficult for labor in many respects, um, finding out about Everything that's going on, all of the initiatives, like no matter how much you crush people down, they're still fighting. Um, that to me was the most inspiring part of the conference and the book. Um, you know, some of the research in, in the book and, um, you know, my chapter on black workers in Boston, I learned so much about the history of black organizing in Boston that, uh, 
I mean, I feel like there's so much of our history that we've lost and that's been invisibilized and that it's really inspiring to work about. And now, you know, that history is being written now and we have to, you know, it's happening now. We have to write it um, because it is inspiring. No, I mean, I would, I don't think I have much to add to that other than, I, I mean, I found actually in some ways like our authors to be inspiring, um, just like, in, and in ways that Avi kind of articulated, but that in, in the fact that maybe leaving out the academics, but I think even the academics like have been doing this too for all, most of us have been doing this, but, but the non-academics that have been, you know, fighting these fights for, you know, so long in quite innovative ways and in really kind of left progressive ways in just sectors that that I guess in a wide range of sectors of the economy and and with different groups of workers have been trying different things that like that I kind of was aware of but but maybe not fully aware of and kind of learning through people that have kind of lived this lived this struggle and then also have the you know the capacity maybe the fortune to kind of also write about it um I, I found that you know quite quite inspiring and was it also part of a i think for us maybe as the editors part of the pleasure of putting putting the book together as well you know in a way that in a way that i don't always get when I'm, i've maybe done an edited collection with you know academics more in, in a classic sense um so that that was sort of a i think a certainly a joy but i think also you'll i think i think readers will enjoy the book for that reason as well and it kind of comes through yeah, I just wanted to to say, you know, that I hope this is such such an excellent volume that I hope that unionists and and allies in in other cities uh, uh, build on this and, and write their own uh, histories in Chicago, in Pittsburgh, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco. You know, each region has its own stories, its own history, um, much of which is is not told. And and in this era of inequality, we desperately need these local stories to be told. And I thank you, Steve and Avi, for um, putting this together. I thank Haymarket Press. Uh, for publishing it and for all their support here. And I, again, urge you, and I know that you have the uh, the link um, to the Haymarket uh, website where they have it for a very, very uh, reasonable price. Um, please purchase a copy of Organizing for Power, Building a 21st Century Labor Movement in Boston. Uh, thank you all and good night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast, and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.